You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hi, Brett. Hi, Bob. How you doing? I'm doing all right. Yourself? Can't complain. Let me introduce this. I'm Robert Wright. This is The Wright Show, available on both streaming video and via audio podcast. You are Brett Stevens, a well-known and sometimes controversial columnist for The New York Times, and we are going to talk about uh, foreign policy. Mm-hmm. Uh, before we do that, um, how are things in... Are you in Washington? No, thank you. You're in New York? I never have been. I'm in... Uh, I'm north of New York City. In, 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 in Westchester County somewhere, I can infer? Yes. At, a, at, a, at an otherwise undisclosed location? At a very undisclosed location. Did you always work from home, or is that a, a, a pandemic phenomenon? No, it's um, it's a twofold phenomenon. Uh, I mean, the pandemic obviously drove me home. The office is uh, is literally closed. Although I, I was in there the other day, and it felt like I was in uh, one of those post apocalyptic movies. But um, I really started working from home a lot more when I moved from the from the Wall Street Journal to the Times. At the, at the Journal, I, I had a management position, so I actually wore a suit every day and sat in an office. Um, and uh, when I came to the Times, I would go in a little more episodically uh, and now hardly at all. And I miss it, to be honest. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, there's something to be said for encountering um, real human beings. Uh, so, um, so as I said, we're going to talk about foreign policy. This is one of a series of conversations I'm having um, about what America's engagement with the world should be like mm-hmm. uh, in the coming years. Um, and I'm trying to talk to people from kind of all major vantage points. I've talked to people who call themselves liberal internationalists, who call themselves realists. I haven't yet succeeded in finding someone who says that they're they're speaking from a neoconservative uh Perspective. I'm hoping you can help and call yourself a neoconservative. I, I talked to Bob Kagan, who was once known as a leading neoconservative thinker. He says he never really liked the term and certainly doesn't consider himself a neoconservative now. So, what is your? I, I mean, I you don't know you what it means exactly. One, I mean, I, I think someone made the point that neoconservatism is more of a tendency than an ideology, uh-huh. and I think that's that's a fair point. I mean, if you probed Bill Crystal or Norman Podhoritz, or Bob Kagan, or me, we would we would probably concur on a lot of stuff, but not everything. And um, you never know when one issue, which seems minor to someone else, becomes major in a, in a given moment in time. But if that's what you want to call me, that's that's fine. Um, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll accept the label. I'd love that. Uh, okay, well, go ahead. Okay, so so then uh, as I ask you about where you think we should go and what you think of, of present policies and past policies, uh, we can think of you as roughly representative of one, one kind of neoconservative perspective. Um, if you find yourself saying something you think doesn't really merit that label or expressing a view that you think doesn't, you can, you can feel free to, um, to say – uh, let me start out abstractly. What what does the term mean to you in, in the foreign policy context? I think it means a certain belief that the United States provides um, 
the margin of safety for the free world by virtue of um, its power, but also by virtue of its idealism. And that if you subtract those two things, um, often it's the left that wants to subtract the power and it's the far right that wants to subtract the idealism, you enter into a world that's uh, more dangerous for everyone, uh, including the U.S. So I think the great uh, historical lodestar for many neoconservatives is the interwar period for the United States when you had a kind of uh, crumbling international order. You had revisionist powers intent on uh, changing things. Uh, and you had uh, an America that was that was absent from the world stage and whose absence led to uh, a catastrophe. And if you ask, I think, any neoconservative or self-described, they would tell you that's exactly the scenario we, we don't want to re- ever repeat. Okay. So, um, you know, what I, I guess a, a common criticism that neoconservatism gets is, is in a way not so abstract. It, it's not that there's an opposition to standing up for ideals. It's more that uh, things the United States has done in recent decades uh, that were partly justified in terms of ideals have not worked out well. You know, I, famously, of course, there's the Iraq War, Libyan intervention, uh, the, the, you know, what I would call a kind of a proxy intervention in Syria and, and, and so on. Um, what's your, I'm sure you've been asked this question enough to have an answer. Well, I mean, it's absolutely true that, um, there are occasions when our reach exceeds our grasp. Um, and it's a good question. And I think a live question as to, um, how that came about. Um, you know, our, the Iraq war certainly made me rethink things, but it didn't make me rethink things in the direction of the left. It made me rethink the value of, uh, realism as a capital R realism, as a, um, strained and foreign policy thinking that has a lot to, uh, a lot to say and, and that those of us who were, at least for a time, idealistic in the democracy camp, um, we didn't pay enough attention to it. And uh, at, at our, you know, to our cost, do I, do I think that it was um, a, a terrible thing to want to remove Saddam Hussein? Absolutely not. I think the, the argument against removing Saddam Hussein uh, wasn't, that we were going to cause all kinds of, of damage. I think we did the world a favor by, by getting, uh, uh, by getting rid of him. The argument is that I think the strong argument is that the chances of imposing a peace on that country in particular, that, uh, would make us proud of as a country, um, were, um, were much smaller than those, of us who were optimistic neocons believed. And so, you know, maybe it would have worked out better if we had gone in and installed a Sunni general of our choosing who, you know, didn't murder people by the scores of thousands and imposed a kind of rough order. Um, uh, but that's, that's, that's a quintessential piece of Monday morning quarterbacking. 
Well, and it would call into question the rationale. I mean, if 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 neo if the original intervention was by neoconservative lights in large part an idealistic thing done done because uh, democracy is much better than authoritarianism than installing an authoritarian regime which it sounds like you're talking about um would not I'm not, not I'm not wedded by the way I'm not wedded to that idea I'm just sort of proposing it and 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 the point you're making of course is absolutely uh is absolutely right which is that you can't sort of take out a, you know, one dictator and put in a Samosa-like figure and then at the same time claim that you're fighting for, um, uh, uh, fighting for a free world. So that, that, the point you're making is, is perfectly valid. At the same time, I mean, really what I, what I struggle with is what if, what if President Bush and Jerry Bremer had said, number one, we're going to maintain the rough structures of power for some time because we cannot have revolution we need uh we need a uh, uh a transition secondly we're not going to insist on democracy as a first order of business but we're going to insist on a process of liberalization of of society so to reverse the democracy liberalism uh, uh, uh sequence i think that that might have helped third we're going to move towards in the direction of local autonomy and federalism in Iraq. They eventually ended up doing that, uh, but in a much more uh, uh, gradual way. And maybe the strong argument about the Iraq war ultimately comes down to this. We had very crappy planning, and we suffered from a second failure of imagination at the same level of magnitude as the failure of imagination that preceded 9-11 in thinking through just how we were going to... Um, uh, get out of there uh, in some reasonable time frame, uh, leaving behind some reasonable state, and and we really didn't do that. Okay. So another argument, I mean, one one kind of realist argument against these kinds of interventions is just that, as much as you can look back in retrospect and say, oh, we should have avoided the blowback. In the realist view, blowback just happens a lot, and it's it's hard to predict. It's just probabilistically, you're better off staying out of these kinds of things. Yeah, look, and I just wrote a long essay a couple months ago about Edmund Burke. Um, and, uh, you know, now in hindsight, uh, 18 years on, uh, the inner Burkean inside of every neocon should have been uh, whispering much more loudly um, and saying, you know, the, the nature of society is is intricate and you don't just go um, and cause revolutions and expect that that freedom is the natural uh, order of things. I think that's that's actually a very strong and very very powerful uh, 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 criticism. What I don't think is a particularly powerful criticism is to say Bush lied us into war. I think there's a huge difference between having mistaken information and uh, lying. I don't think it's a strong criticism to say. We had a stable situation with Saddam Hussein in power. We uh, uh, we most uh, certainly didn't. I don't think it's a strong criticism to say, uh, look, he had no nuclear weapons. There's a lot of information that he intended to piece together a nuclear program after the sanctions uh, uh, had been lifted. So a lot of the criticisms that I've heard, which are criticisms mainly coming from the left, to me, 
don't add up. But the criticisms that come from the right, I think, are more powerful. Okay. So an- another uh, objection, uh, and I guess this is somewhat a realist objection to this kind of intervention, is you know to ask, do we want to sustain a norm according to which powerful nations are allowed to intervene in the name of idealism, uh, especially given a couple of things. One is that our relative power is probably going to decline given the rise of China and just the the way history works, kind of. Um, and B, given the fact that we can't claim, I think, that we apply uh the this idealism at least over the long sweep of 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 well of of recent american history in recent decades i don't think we can come we can uh claim that we co- we apply this idealism with consistency i mean famous examples are where we've actually overthrown uh democratically elected governments or helped overthrow them as in iran in 1953 but more recently um you know we just uh signed a um a uh, well, we uh, we uh, orchestrated this this Middle East uh, deal that I think you favor, but that does involve giving a lot of weapons to authoritarian regimes that uh, are, in some cases, I think we would say, brutally authoritarian. Even leaving aside the fact that um, UAE, uh, UAE has has recently used weapons, at least by my lights, to do things in Yemen that were. To put it mildly, not productive and not humane, but 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 the larger point is this question of: um, Do we want to, as especially as our power declines relatively, do we want to sustain this idea that powerful nations get to decide what is an idealistic cause and use force on behalf of that cause? In ways that would seem to, uh, you know, violate longstanding international norms uh, and laws about uh, transborder aggression. Well, I mean, you asked a number of questions, but I would say to your top order question, uh, the answer is unequivocally yes. Okay, because the alternative is Srebrenica. The alternative is Rwanda. The alternative is um, uh, our people being gassed in on the outskirts of, of Damascus. And I don't remember um, moral objections coming from the left when we were stopping uh, ethnic cleansing in, in Kosovo. I mean, look, every situation is different. But the idea that because we are, quote, powerful, we can't also operate with a sense of moral purpose and moral discrimination, I think is wrong and I think would... You know, right now we ask ourselves, why didn't we bomb the, the train tracks uh, going to, uh, to Auschwitz? Why didn't we do more to stop one humanitarian calamity uh, after another? And, you know, speaking of Burke, although this is a misquote, but the, the answer is, you know, all that's needed for evil to triumph is for, is for good men to, uh, to do nothing. Mm-hmm. The, the real quote is somewhat more uh, florid. Um, and so, yes, we should. There are occasions when absolutely we should intervene and use our preponderant power to stop innocent people from being slaughtered on a mass scale. Now, a second question is, 
Well, how can we do it when we can't do it all the time? That's like saying, why give money to whatever St. Jude's if you're not going to give money to any other number of charities? You do what you you can with the resources that you have. Um, and I think we have as often failed when when we sort of told ourselves that we did not have the wherewithal to stop slaughters that could have actually been stopped at an incredibly low cost. To me, the great example of that, if you read Samantha Power and uh, I guess Phil uh, uh, Gurevich, is how much we could have done if we'd simply disabled the radio tower that was broadcasting instructions to uh, the Hutu militia slaughtering Tutsi in, uh, uh, in, in, in 1994. Now, a third argument you make is the question of what you, what you state as a fact is our declining relative power. I'm not sure that's true, um, which is to say that you can go back to Richard Nixon 50 years ago giving speeches at the, I think, the Kansas City Economic Club talking about our declining relative power. It is, in fact, true that from World War II, when half the world was laid waste, it, it declined. But ever since then, U.S. GDP, give or take, has been somewhere between 20 and 30 percent of global GDP. And the question of relative power has to take into account actors other than other than China. I mean, European GDP has also shrunk uh, much more considerably uh, than ours. So uh, I think declinism, belief in declinism can become a self-fulfilling prophecy when you say, okay, we're a declining power, so we can do less. So you uh, you do less, and you end up sort of shunting yourself off the world stage in a um, possibly mistaken belief that um, we are we are we are more constrained than than we actually are. Anyway, that was that was too many answers to too many questions. Okay, uh, <laughs> um, I'll <clears throat> I'll try to. Uh put my my questions into smaller clusters from here on in. Let, let me um, uh, say in, in reply to those replies, um, I guess a few things. Um, again, it, it, it seems to me, A, kind of hard to defend uh, the enforcement of this norm if, in fact, we don't enforce it consistently and, in fact, violate it. You, 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 uh, you referred to, for example, the fact... You said, well, how else are we going to keep uh, people from gassing large numbers of people? Well, in the, uh, you know, not so long ago, we actually helped Iraq gas large numbers of uh, Kurds and kill them. Uh, and, um, and and so there is that. And 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 I'm not sure there's been a period of American Wait, history. Is that, I'm sorry, is that true? Are um, you sure of that? I mean, I well, know that Rumsfeld in early in the 80s met with Saddam, but the argument that we helped Saddam use gas in Halabja against the well, Kurds, to the, I, I, would, I, I just don't want to sort of say when kind of that, nod my, nod along when that was that. happening, to the extent that we were helping one side or another in the Iran-Iraq war, we were helping Iraq. You'd agree with that, right? Yeah, up to a point, but that's a different argument from saying, I mean, we were helping well, the Soviets... In World War II, but we didn't uh, abet massacres carried out by the Soviet army. I mean, that, that's I'm not quite sure what the moral. The well, okay, but but now you are uh, 
arguing that in a in a certain sense to do nothing amid these kinds of atrocities is if not complicity in them is indefensible and i'm just saying that as a as a matter of american policy um we have in fact abetted countries that were perpetrating those very kinds of atrocities on 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 comparable scale so yeah, um, I, I, again, it's just it's just maybe we can imagine a world in which America actually purports itself uh, in accordance with it, its ideals, doesn't flood um, authoritarian Arab countries with weapons. Maybe, but as recently as like last week, that was not the case. Now, but, but uh, can I can I just so. so uh, The United States moves from administration to administration. It moves from the neoconservative persuasion to the realist persuasion to the America first persuasion according to um, an electoral calendar and according to the tastes and preferences of the American voter in a way that's not particularly consistent. We would not want it otherwise. Do you agree? I'm in favor of democracy, yes. Right. So... We're contrasting what America has actually done because we're a democracy whose policies and ambitions are variable with what I am suggesting is what ought to be done, right? I mean, I wish, you know, that I could have my man in the State Department or my woman in the State Department, you know, indefinitely and that the United States would pursue a consistent foreign policy year after year after year and administration after administration. It doesn't. So pointing out ways in which we have fallen short of our idealism or my idealism doesn't invalidate the idealism and observing uh, hypocrisies in power or at least variations uh, in, uh, in power doesn't mean we should abandon the idea that uh, it's better for a world in which the United States at least occasionally comes in and saves the person who's about to be slaughtered by a by a despot or a warlord or, or, or whatever. And one more point, all of those considerations have to take place prudentially because we will, in fact, have to pick and choose between whether we save the Syrians who are being gassed or uh, Congolese who are, being, uh, who are being slaughtered. And those are very, you know, any honest reckoning should tell you that those are those are terribly difficult decisions to make, but I don't think that the answer to the fact that we can't do it all is that we ought to do nothing so we can revel in a consistent policy of abnegation. Yeah, no, that's not the point I'm trying to make. The point I'm trying to make is that, and it's kind of abstract, and if you wanted to argue about how much it applies here, if at all, you'd probably be going on all day. The point is that if if a policy's success depends in part on consistent application, which I would argue is the case here, um, and our democracy precludes consistent application, we should take that into account in deciding whether it makes sense to try to apply the policy sporadically. You're saying it still makes sense. I'm saying uh, I, I think the inconsistency actually... Uh, exact costs that are worth considering, but in, in any event, no. That's, listen, I, that's, I completely agree with that. I completely well, agree. in a different sense, though. I think maybe, but I mean, obviously, and, and you have to take into account that if you embark on a policy. I mean, let me take an example of the uh, of the JCPOA, right? 
the JCPOA, the, the Iran uh, nuclear, nuclear agreement deal, that Obama did, yeah, at some level rested on an on a what seemed at the time a safe bet that Obama would be succeeded by Hillary Clinton, and that the policy would 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 persist. And and part of Obama's mistake is he didn't lay enough of a foundation in Congress to uh, bulletproof his agreement against future administrations in the way that, um, let's say, um, the Reagan administration's INF deal survived for nearly, you know, 30 years because it had much more bipartisan uh, uh, consensus. And I think there's a very good argument to be made that more congressional input into core foreign policy decisions, including decisions to go to war, was very wise of the founders because it it created a mechanism by which um, continuity in foreign policy would be easier to practice. That's the same reason we have the two-thirds clause when it comes to uh, uh, to foreign treaties. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, I agree with you, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I would say, I, I mean, I... I, I, I... I take your point that probably there's been a drift toward the exercise of, of executive authority at the expense of um, congressional approval that's that's in many realms, not just foreign policy, not altogether healthy. I, I would say I think Obama was also just kind of assuming that uh, his successor – well, he was assuming his successor wouldn't be Donald Trump. Not many of us saw that coming, but also that his successor – would, you know, kind of minimally comply with the norm of not radically undoing things that the U.S. had, in fact, uh, agreed to. But, but, uh, leaving all, leaving all that aside, um, the, uh, a couple of other things. The, um, one is just that the, um, you know, the, the, you're, you're saying interventions, unilateral interventions are sometimes needed because, uh, there are, violations on a horrific scale of, of human rights and slaughter on a horrific scale of, of human beings. And that's certainly true. On the other hand, the the several recent interventions in the Middle East that I think were a bad idea, uh, which I listed, um, and which I think generally were uh, supported by neoconservatives, although in the case of Syria, they would have liked to have done more, I know, um, those things, there, the the horrific uh, murder was not happening at the time of the initial intervention. Saddam Hussein wasn't at that point murdering thousands of people. Uh, neither was Gaddafi in Syria. I'm sorry, but well, hang on, stop. Yeah, forgive me. But the what prompted the Obama administration, which was not considered neo neoconservative, right. to intervene was literally a statement by Qaddafi or one of his lieutenants that he was going to hunt down the re- rebellious people of Benghazi, quote, like rats. Yeah. That well, comment, so that's not true, at least certainly in the case of Libya. And in the case of Saddam Hussein, the guy was a one-man weapon of mass destruction from the moment he took power in the mid-1970s all the way up to his his capture in December of, of 2003. So I don't think it was an ambitious bet to say that at some point uh, the machinery of Saddam's uh, uh, repression would fall very heavily on some, you know, very innocent group of people. Oh, there are a lot of cases. We, as I said, we have recently given weapons to, uh, uh, to authoritarians who... I, I am sure if their regime were actually uh, imperiled, uh, 
would do God knows what. But uh, if we're going to intervene every time we think maybe in the future something horrible might happen, well, you know, you're I don't know. Really, that's a lo- that's a lot of intervention. But but let no, me. No, no, no. I agree with you. And 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 uh, uh, please don't. Um, let, let me just make my argument clear. Okay. Anyone in power has to make cautious, prudential judgments. Heavy, and in my view, with a heavy, uh, with a heavy degree of moral information, if, if I can put it that way, about who it is that we support and how it is that we oppose. Right. So I had, uh, I, I thought it was terribly misjudged of Mike Pompeo to wait for what 48 hours before he was paying court to uh MBS Mohammed bin Salman in in uh in Riyadh after the uh, atrocious murder of of Jamal Khashoggi um does that mean that we cut off Saudi Arabia for all time i don't think so um that seems to me to carry its own sort of moral cost but i guess i guess what i'm saying is there's nothing really cut and dry about any of this. I mean, the UAE is carrying out a policy in Yemen, which is a, a more complicated situation than I think you're letting on. But the UAE, by the standards of its region, is probably one of the more liberal and enlightened regimes in the uh, in the Arab world. Should we not support that? Should we should we say we're going to do nothing for the UAE until they? I don't know, give citizenship to all their foreign workers who are multi-generational people there. I mean, I can go down the list of all the ways in which the UAE falls short of your standards in mind, both in terms of its domestic and foreign policies. But uh, we're not being serious when it comes to foreign policy if we're simply going to say, you know, the UAE is up to no good here and there, and therefore let's let's just sort of cut it off. I think that's a classic case of... of um, that would be that would be foreign mal, foreign policy malpractice on a uh, on a high level. There's there's there there there's bad and there's really bad, and the art of foreign policy is knowing the difference. Um, no, I I don't mean uh, cut it off in the sense of disengagement. Uh, I just don't think we should. Uh, well, le- le- leave aside what I believe. I, I was basically just pointing out a seeming tension. Uh, between uh, a neoconservative willingness to intervene because of a certain degree of authoritarianism while funneling weapons into authoritarians that are a little that are that are that seem not so extreme on the authoritarian scale but but l- let me get back to your Libya point um I, I should emphasize the intervention to defend Benghazi is is not the part of the operation I opposed. And, and one of the main reasons is that was actually consistent with international law because it had the sanction of the Security Council. There was explicit Security Council authorization. That matters a lot to me. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't to everyone, you might say, in the foreign policy establishment, to put it mildly, but it, it matters to me. And um, uh, my problem uh, comes when the the mission was pretty explicitly changed to regime change. There are people who argue that that was consistent with the language of the resolution. That's a, a dicey argument. It's, it certainly wasn't obviously in compliance with the, with the spirit and meaning of the resolution in any event. So I'm not, I'm not, uh, I'm not arguing with, uh, uh, an authorized intervention on behalf of the, the, the people of, um, 
Benghazi. And, and I would say more broadly that it's worth keeping in mind that, you know, I originally couched my um, uh, skepticism about uh, some of the interventions that uh, neoconservatives have favored uh, as being interventions that, among other things, as I, I think I put it, violated international laws and norms. And it is possible to intervene uh, in the internal affairs of a nation uh, whose government is doing horrible things um, or where horrible things are being done uh, in a way that's consistent with international law. And Bosnia was actually an example. I think you cited Bosnia as, uh, you know, asking, well, what do we do about Bosnia? What we did about Bosnia was fine by my lights. We went to the Security Council, got the authorization. It was consistent with international law. We intervened. It was a success. You're not as, always as I, gonna... as I remember it, um, forgive me, and this, 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 uh, I, I don't, uh, um, I'm not checking, uh, whatever news sources at the moment, but as I remember it, we did it over the opposition of Russia. Um, and uh, we did it really when Holbrook more or less told Clinton, just, just do it and the Europeans will get behind you. And, and I have a, I mean, look, I understand. I don't, I don't think that's true. I think we had UN security council. In, in 1994, when we were bombing uh, uh, Serb sites, uh, Bosnian Serb sites around Sarajevo to lift the siege of Sarajevo. I do not believe we had uh, Security Council uh, support, but I might be wrong. So someone who's listening to I, I, I this... I think we did. Kosovo, we did not have support for. Okay, so then would you argue that we shouldn't have done Kosovo? Yes. So I find that kind of troubling, and for this reason, because you have... I mean, I understand the point about legitimacy, and I think it's a powerful argument. But by the same token, let's face it, uh, the whip hand in the Security Council is now held by uh, Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping. So we have uh, this contraption there that hands to two of the world's most authoritarian leaders um, the right to dictate um, whether uh, Bashar Assad gets to remain in power and, and whether his people are gonna, going to continue to suffer. And I... I'm not persuaded that there is a strong moral claim that the, per, the, the imprimatur of the Security Council is so important that we need to abide by it um, instead of saving actual human lives. And, um, and look, I, I, I get that this is, a, again, a difficult thing to weigh, and I'm not indifferent to the claims of international law and international uh, uh, legitimacy, um, but, uh, you know, there are moments in time when law and legitimacy or not, there is an inarguable case for the United States to go and save lots of people at, at relatively low cost to ourselves. If the, if we had sought Security Council permission to intervene in Rwanda in April of 1994 and had been told no, I still think it would have been the right thing to do to intervene. Okay. Um, the, uh, on the on the UN, I mean, uh, yes, China and Russia have the whip hand. So do we. Five, five nations have uh, veto power. Um, I think um, the fact that under the current structure of uh, nations other than us have, have veto power in the Security Council um, means that we should, you know, be careful in our compliance uh, with 
um, Security Council resolutions, especially the ones that we champion. In the case of Libya, we got Russia's support for that. And Russia was pretty thoroughly antagonized by the fact that uh, by their lights, we went well beyond the mandate. We did ultimately go for regime change. That's far from the only thing that makes Russia less likely to support a, U- a U.S.-sponsored initiative in the, in the Security Council right now. But but if I were in charge of, if I were Secretary of State, uh, part of my statecraft would be orchestrating uh, relations with Russia and China, uh, mindful of the fact that uh, sometimes it's 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 helpful to have their um, their support in the Security Council. It's 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 a complicated thing. I, I mean, as for your saying, well, Kosovo, um, so you wouldn't have intervened to help people in Kosovo, and I say no. Um, I mean, two things. I'm not sure the situation in Kosovo is – we are not yet at kind of uh, a degree of uh, stability, I think, that allows us to declare this an unequivocal success. But more broadly, um, <clears throat> the the idea is that when you're trying to build norms uh, such as respect for international law, um, you can't do everything that it seems tempting on moral grounds to do. And the flip side of that is that – um, you know, you, you, you say, you know, when you do succumb to the temptation to do things on moral grounds, it can lead to cat- catastrophe so great that certainly if your, if your moral calculus includes, a, you know, a calculus of the net suffering of humankind, it was an immoral thing to do. And I would, I would say the Iraq intervention um, falls in this category. Again, there was no genocide going on in Iraq when we intervened. Can, can I ask you a question, Bob? So yeah. wh- why is that, why is the argument that you just made no less applicable to the question of American intervention, uh, say, Lend-Lease in 19, uh, early 1941 or the run-up to World War II? I mean, you sound to me like Bob Taft. Which is not a bad thing. Bob Taft was a great American, okay? But Bob Taft was 100% wrong about America and World War II, and Franklin Roosevelt was 100% right. And you are making a Taftian argument. And by the way, you can go, I, I quote passages of, of Taft in, um, uh, in my book on, on, on this subject. Taft goes on and on, like, okay, let's say we get, this is Taft. Let's say we get involved in this gigantic European war and we're going to send the, the fruit of America's high schools off to some foreign lands to fight. And then you know what's going to happen? Even if we're able to win at an immense cost of life, so far as prediction is completely right, what's going to happen? How are we going to pacify Germany? We'll have to put in an army into Germany. And how much is that going to cost the American taxpayer year after year, decade after decade, to make sure that Germany doesn't resurge and that the peace of Europe is is maintained. Taft is on every particular point right. His prophecy is extraordinarily prescient. And yet he is totally wrong. He is totally wrong because what we actually did is we 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 stopped the greatest menace to human freedom in in history. We prevented the final extermination of the Jews. We stood up Europe as a free half continent that eventually became a free whole continent. And so the payoff of that intervention turned out to be extraordinarily great. Now, not everything is World War II. Not every analogy is perfect, and I'm happy to, to, to grant that. But 
you seem to be making a fairly categorical argument that fails at least that in my mind fails that particular test. And I think it's worth your time wrestling with, with this question. How am I different from Bob Taft circa January, 1941? Um, Well, first of all, I should say, as I've said before, I would not rule out all conceivable uh, unilateral interventions or interventions not sanctioned under international law that that have a compelling humanitarian rationale. I, I would not rule those out. And I think I think Rwanda is a, is a good example of of one where if if I were transported back in time and somebody could convince me that bombing a radio tower would make a huge difference, I would be hard pressed to say no. But but to get back to the Taft thing in particular, this was first of all. Before there was a UN Security Council, so he wouldn't have, Taft wouldn't have been making the argument I'm making that we should try to get UN Security Council support. B, to the extent that questions of international law would have arisen, I don't think it's a tough argument to, to, uh, intervene on the side of, of the Allies. Uh, uh, you know, international law, I don't know what state of evolution exactly it was in, but certainly international law slash norms already had come down on the side of nations that are invaded without provoking invasion. It, there's no doubt who the bad guys were in Germany on those grounds al- in, in World War II, on those grounds well, alone. Your right? argument so, doesn't, doesn't really work. I mean, it's kind of, I'm sort of amused by the, the course of our conversation because we haven't even, I think, spoken the word of the current president of the United States. Um, uh, but what you're basically saying, I mean, was Britain invaded in January 1940 when it desperately needed our destroyers? Mm-hmm. No. Was France invaded? No. Uh, you know. Uh, oh, so you're talking pre-intervention, and so you're talking. Wait, you're, you're talking have, about you're asking what I have allowed us to supply weapons to a country? Well, sure. Uh, what, what you're what you're basically making the argument is that you're making the, the the same argument that the isolationists were making all the way up until we were finally bombed at Pearl Harbor. Right up until December 6, 1941, this was, forgive me for saying this, this was the America first argument. Let's, let's keep our hands clean of all of this foreign unpleasantness. Um, and, and that was, that was essentially the same thing. Well, that's just not what I'm saying, first of all, but go ahead. No, no, go ahead. But go ahead. Then tell me what you're saying. Well, I'm not saying keep our hands clean of all this unpleasantness. As, as I've said, I mean, I, I supported the Bosnia intervention. At the time, I've said that that there are sufficiently extreme circumstances, but not the Kosovo intervention. That's correct, and and it, and it has to do with the costs of uh, of interventions, at least in the eyes uh, of, of of technically illegal interventions under international law, in the eyes of someone who. Uh, believes it's extremely important, and this is an argument I haven't made, and this probably isn't the place to make it, I've made it before, but that it's extremely important to nurture respect for international law and the further evolution of international law. This has to do with, like, imagining a world with inexorably evolving weapons technologies and biotech and so on, in which there is no uh, consistent respect for international law, but just Leave that aside, my argument, as is often the case, right? If you, if you respect, if you think law, law is important. It's like if I hear that, uh, my neighbor is, uh, doing, uh, you know, I don't know, certain kinds of things that are illegal, um, 
and I really don't approve of them, and I really don't think the police are responding adequately. One of the reasons I don't take it upon myself to break down the door, in, in addition to, you know, fear and cowardice and things like that, is that I, I don't think I want to live in a country where we let neighbors decide when interventions like that are warranted. Yeah, but if your neighbor, okay, so let's take this analogy. If you hear every single night that your neighbor is beating the shit out of his wife, um, mm-hmm. uh, um, and uh, you call the police and they say, sorry, we're otherwise engaged. And you call yeah. again and you say, sorry, we're otherwise engaged. And you call again and then you say, oh, by the way, there's and they say, by the way, there's a new law, um, thanks to a new radically right uh, wing Republican administration that um, that that we can't object to the neighbor beating his wife so long as he beats his wife within the confines of their uh, of their home, you're just going to let that continue indefinitely. And every night you will hear a woman screaming because she's being beaten up. Mm. Right. And you're going to say, you know, it's a real shame, but this, this new law really prevents the cops from doing anything about it. And who am I to go into my neighbor's home and, and save this woman from further misery? Um, that that seems well, to me a pretty good analogy for what you're suggesting. Well, in this imaginary world, you're asking me to uh, uphold laws that I, I think are horrible, which is not what I'm talking about but here. But sometimes international law can be horrible. I suppose, but it, that's not the that's not the part that, <laughs> that in my view, I'm uh, I'm arguing for. The other thing I'd say is that look, if, if you're talking about somebody who's about to kill somebody next door, and I magically have the power to intervene to stop it, I, I do that. But I would say that's analogous to these extreme situations that didn't obtain in the case of of Iraq, in the case of of uh, going to regime change in in Libya, and even in the case of Syria. Although once we and our allies did start funneling weapons into Syria, the, the regimes, as it became more of a civil war, the regime did more and more extreme things. That is true. But our initial decision to intervene, I don't think, uh, was warranted by the moral facts on the ground. I just want to flesh out something I, I started to say earlier, which is that, you know, uh, one so by the reason- way, you think we should bug out of you agree with the president when we should we should bug out of Syria and let the Kurds let let Bashar Assad as the president of Syria uh, deal with the Kurds under his own sovereign roof. Um perhaps with the help of his friends, the Russians, who are there by invitation? Uh, basically, um, I, I, I do think we have no business being there under international law. I, I think our, our, our intervention has been extremely unproductive. I think we, are respo- we and our allies are responsible for the deaths of tons of people, a huge ref- refugee exodus. Look, it would not have been a wonderful world if, if we had chosen not to challenge not to go for regime change in Syria because he'd still be in power. He's still in power anyway. The difference is a bunch of people are dead. A bunch of refugees probably triggered Brexit in Europe and may well have led to the election of but, Donald but, Trump. But, but, your I, argument, I but your argument defeats itself, Bob, if I may say. And I'm really enjoying this conversation just, just for the too. record. It's very thought-provoking for me. Um, uh, the whole story of Syria was that... The Obama administration, until very late in the game, absolutely refused to intervene. And so Syria is a perfect case yeah. study. It is, As yeah, you know, I'm not against refusing to intervene, okay, but go but ahead. It is, it is a perfect case study, Syria, to me, or a near perfect, all right? 
It is a near-perfect case study of what happens in the world when you adopt the position you did. Because Russia and later China were going to back Bashar Assad, there was no chance of international law um, uh, uh, sanctioning a uh, an intervention. Um, Obama was very, very uh, unwilling to support the opposition. And when he did, uh, we know uh, it was essentially feckless and incompetent and, and de minimis. Syria spiraled out of control uh, of its own accord because of its fractious ethnic and political uh, and religious makeup. Um, the refugee crisis was not sparked by American intervention. We hadn't really intervened in, uh, in any meaningful way. It was sparked because we allowed this nation to crumble into blood and ashes, and that spilled over into Turkey and later into, uh, into Europe itself. So it's, to me, Syria is a perfect case study in why neoconservatism might have something to teach us, that the internal affairs of other countries uh, ultimately matter uh, to our own uh, security and, and, and that the moral depredations carried out far from home um, have some effect on us. You made the point, I think rightfully, that there wouldn't have been Brexit without the refugee crisis. There might not have been Trump without Brexit. So uh, there is a... There is without a change. ISIS, which might well not exist had we not uh, intervened in, in Iraq to be On the with. contrary, ISIS is another example of what I mean, because ISIS is what sprang up when we left Iraq in 2011 declaring victory and created a vacuum of power that ISIS was very quickly able but to fill. But it fill. had been incubated in the Iraq we created by invading. No, we had very comprehensively defeated al-Qaeda in Iraq. Uh, the surge was successful. We could have maintained it with a little more diplomatic muscle. Leon Panetta says this, much more of a tripwire force in, in Iraq that could have stood up the Iraq army and prevented the fall of Mosul back in, in 2013, I guess. So, So I'm not... I'm just not persuaded. I'm completely open, completely open to the argument that Iraq may have been misjudged from from the get-go, that it was, and you put this very powerfully at the beginning, that it was just, it's in the nature of blowback that you just don't know where it's going to come from. You don't know how things are going to fall. The moment you, you, you press the button, in a sense, things are somewhat beyond your control. And I, I accept that as a, as a really powerful critique. What I, what, what I can accept is saying, well, we bugged out of Iraq in 2011 by, by loudly declaring victory after a very successful surge created a vacuum that was then filled by, by ISIS. We, we refused to get engaged in Syria, and it was the refusal to engage in Syria uh, that helped let this country um, disseminate chaos throughout throughout the region and indeed throughout throughout the world. I think that that's a point that has to be at some level reckoned with. And maybe the truth lies somewhere between uh, our claims. Okay, Uh, we probably shouldn't spend forever uh, on hypothetical uh, counterfactuals. Let me just make clear what my position is and then I'll let you respond and then we'll we'll move on. Um, In Syria, I've tried to be careful to talk about the intervention of the U.S. and its allies, broadly speaking. Europe, uh, Arab nations, Turkey, uh, that, that sent weapons into Syria in ways we did not certainly complain about and with our apparent uh, approval. I think if you look at when that started happening, it, you, you, you know, it is far from clear that had it not happened, 
there would have been this this uh nearly the carnage i think we would have had a brutally suppressed insurrection which is a bad thing in itself i'm not in favor in principle of 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 dictators brutally suppressing dissidents but in my judgment um that's what would have happened uh but again it's counterfactual the 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 um i mean that's uh, an argument for the bombs of aleppo what's that you know we would have stayed out. Actually, someone did intervene quite successfully and at relatively low cost. That was Vladimir Putin. Without moral scruple, he bombed Aleppo into smithereens. Bashar Assad was about to fall right before the Russian intervention. Um, yeah. He turned the tide at, at very low, uh, at very low uh, cost to himself. A couple mm-hmm. regiments of, uh, of uh, MiGs and Sukhoi aircraft and, and a few other, you know, other, other forms of help. Uranians, of course, helped as well. Um, and, uh, and that's how you obtained, you know, this, this outcome. Okay, but most- you agree that by then weapons were coming in from outside the borders of Syria to support the rebels, right? Yes, they were. Okay. And many of, them were, coming, many of the, them were coming from Turkey the, supporting the, ISIS. And the other counterfactual, my understanding is that the precursor of ISIS festered in Iraq in the post-invasion chaos that we created, uh, after which it metastasized in, in Syria and at some point became ISIS per se. Um, and, and, and I would say in Syria benefited from, from chaos that we and our, uh, allies helped create. But, but that's, but, that's but the no, end sorry, of my, that's, just, you just can say whatever record. you want and then I'll shut up about, uh, I'll say nothing further about okay, these but for, for the record, no, that's not what happened. Uh, <laughs> a, a vendor, a, a poor street vendor in Tunisia, set himself on fire. It created a revolution in Tunisia, which immediately spread to Egypt. Astonishingly, the Mubarak government of 29 years collapsed. That started the rebellion in Syria. It was not, in fact, what began in Iraq. This is a process, this was an internal Arab process that began by an act of of tragedy and desperation by one man in, in Tunisia in December of 2010. Okay, well, I will stand by my counterfactual, uh, and and uh, I think commendably abide by my pledge to say nothing further on the matter. Okay, um, <laughs> right, the, sorry. The the uh, so let, let's then let's talk about the the future. I, I think we've established uh, some some principles uh, that guide your views on foreign policy that are. are Roughly the principles I associate with neoconservative, mm-hmm. neoconservatism. Um, you know, there, there is, is, uh, well, first an emphasis on the robust use of, uh, both American military force and I would say American military might in, in the form of sanctions and so on. Um, uh, and, and, uh, not infrequently, uh, the justification for that force, uh, is, uh, an issue of, of human rights or uh, liberty or something in some other country uh and and it often involves the intervention in the in the internal affairs um of the other country uh and, and most of those things i think distinguish you from realists uh it, it's fair to say certainly and to a lesser extent from at least some liberal internationalists so going forward um Look at the future. I mean, suppose we make you both Secretary of State and National Security Advisor in a Biden administration. 
something I'm not sure I'll be writing in support of should should Biden uh, be elected. But I, I wouldn't write in support of it myself. Oh, come ahead. on. Don't be so humble. I like writing columns. Uh, well, you could. Uh, it's power without responsibility. Uh, <laughs> so um, but anyway, what would you looking ahead? I mean, there is uh, there's the the uh china which has uh, the two kinds of issues fears about its external behavior especially in the region and uh issues involving its internal behavior the uyghurs hong kong um why don't we start with china what would you what would you do well to me the the challenge of china isn't so much the rise of china but it's the truculent decline uh there is uh it has been for some time a great deal of evidence that um uh, China is not uh, rising economically uh, the way it had been in the years of um, of the 80s, 90s, and, and the early years of the 21st century. Uh, their population is stagnating um, and badly lopsided in terms of uh, sex ratios. Productivity has stagnated cons- uh, uh, considerably. And typically things don't go well when uh, a country of that size um, falls under the sway of a single, uh, of a single person in the way that it has under Xi. My basic analysis of China is that since 1976, it's had two, the Communist Party there has had two sources of legitimacy. One is economic growth and the other is uh, Chinese nationalism. And one of the reasons why we see this emphasis on the nationalistic side of their policy is that uh, growth has has lagged very considerably. I don't for a second believe a single Chinese statistic that I read. That's just, uh, for me, a, just a given. Um, uh, so nations that are declining are dangerous because they don't feel they can play for time, right? I mean, Deng Xiaoping sort of talked about 50 years. Uh, clearly, Xi has a very different, uh, uh, very different timetable. I think the Trump administration has got it not exactly wrong, but largely wrong in the following sense. I think we should not be opposing legitimate Chinese efforts to integrate their economy in the world. I don't think we have a trade problem with China. We have a theft problem with China, which is real and needs to be pursued through, you know, legal uh, uh, legal means. But we do have a very real problem in terms of China's behavior in its vicinity. So when Trump stops military exercises with South Korea or major military exercises, when he keeps increasing the cost of America's uh, defense role in, in, uh, uh, in Japan, um, these sorts of steps don't help. What we really ought to be doing is saying, let's reach a trade agreement with China. Let's enforce the intellectual property penalties as strongly as we can to dissuade the Chinese from, from, from that kind of behavior. Let's bolster our security alliances in the region. And of course, the, the biggest mistake that Trump made was to get out of the TPP, which was the greatest counterweight to uh, Chinese economic power in the region that we might have. So if I were advising Biden... First thing I would tell him is complete your complete President Obama's uh, um, mission, get the TPP done, 
Um, that's, that's actually one of the good things that Obama did was the, the broad direction of a kind of a rebalance to, to uh, the Far East. Okay, so um, but what about uh, the, the Uyghurs? Uh, um, I, I, I think there are already some Trump sanctions, are there, that, that, that are... Uh... Yeah, and, and I think they should be commended, by the way. And, and, and in particular, uh, you know, that, by your own reckoning, is a purely internal uh, uh, Chinese affair. But I, I believe we should be sanctioning all sorts of officials who are engaged in this, travel bans... I think we should be extending the Magnitsky uh, concept to um, to Chinese officials who are violating human rights uh, in Xinjiang. Much more importantly is the Hong Kong story. And uh, because this is just a naked violation of the Sino-British Declaration of 84, I can't remember, 85. That's a, that's, that's a UN treaty. That I think you and I can agree on. Chinese are, are clearly violating it. Boris Johnson took the right step when, and I don't quite know how far along it is, in offering visas to every Hong Kong person who wants a British visa. And if I were Donald Trump and I really wanted to hurt the Chinese, I'd say, you know, Hong Kong is filled with millions of extraordinarily talented people and we would welcome them to our shores. And we are prepared to offer an H-1B visa to just about any Hong Kong person who offers one. And it would be, in the long term, one of the greatest boons to the American economy and at the same time deeply wound uh, the Chinese. So that's a first-pass answer at how, at how we might. TPP, visas for Hong Kong people, penalties for, for, for Xinjiang, and strengthening military relations throughout the Indo-Pacific. Okay. So you said that by my lights, um, the Uyghurs are a purely internal matter. I mean, technically, I don't want to characterize your argument. Yeah, I, I mean, don't technically, that's, that's true. It is internal. I, I would, I would say that it's in the category of things that I would look at closely with an eye. Uh, it, it is in the category of things that I can imagine justifying a, justifying a form of intervention. A and B. I, of course, mind economic sanctions less than I mind military intervention as a rule. I would say that. I'm not a fan of economic sanctions by and large, and and I wanted to ask you about a, several forms they're taking, Venezuela, Iran, Syria. In my view, in all of these cases, uh, in in the name of, well, at a minimum, punishing the regime, and I suppose in the name of the long-term goal of regime change, but in any event, it seems to me we are hurting the people of all of these uh, countries and subjecting them to suffering in the hope that at some at some point, you know, uh, I don't know, something something good will come of it. It, it. it seems to me it hasn't yet. Yeah, I think you and I are probably in at least uh, considerable agreement there. I mean, I've never, you know, when you create scarcity in any economy, the people with power and guns are going to control scarce resources and in doing so uh, actually get more power by being able to distribute them to favored, favored uh, friends and allies. So the kind of broad-based sanctions that we've, we've often imposed on other countries have been uh, not only cruel, but often self-defeating. I'm not against sanctions if they are smartly targeted at the people in power. So for instance, in Iran, oh, um, 
I have to start recording again because I guess we ran out of we ran out of space. If it, if it's easy to do, go ahead. I think I, I think we're fine. I think the quality of the recording has been fine at okay. our end. But so I mean, in the case of Iran, for instance, a great deal of economic power is concentrated in these religious foundations known as the Bonyad, right? Um, so Iran is not just a theocracy; it's kind of an oligarchy and a kleptocracy. Uh, is it possible for the Treasury Department to organize sanctions in a way that profoundly hurts the uh, concentration of economic power in the Bonyad or the IRGC? I suspect that it, it, it's, it is. I think we've gotten a lot smarter about the use of sanctions, at least vis-a-vis Iran, in the last 10, uh, uh, 10 years. Um, helped along, by the way, I should add, by people like my friend Mark Dubowitz at the uh, Foundation of Defense of Democracies, who someone you should have on your show if you haven't already. Um, uh, I've probably said too many mean things in print about FDD, but 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 it, it would be worth it would be worth trying. Well, it, would be, it would be big of you then to have him on the show. And I'm nothing if not big. It's a, okay. You've 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 persuaded me. Uh, he's he's uh, he's he's a very good uh, advocate for his own cause, um, and I think they've they've able to retool sanctions so that they're much more focused on on the bad guys and not the not those who are who are suffering. Uh, you mentioned some other countries, Venezuela, well, Syria, and Venezuela. Well, in the case of Venezuela. Um, you know, we have very little to show for years and years of sanctions. And by the way, Venezuela is an excellent example to me. And boy, am I going to get into trouble on on this for, for saying it, but I'm going to say it anyway, is the misery, including starvation, that is being imposed by the regime in Venezuela and also by the effects of sanctions really worth the price of refusing any form of military intervention. I'm asking that as a question, not rhetorically. I'm asking it as a live question that I think morally serious people ought to answer. Because if you are aware of, if you followed reporting by people like Nick Casey in the Times and elsewhere about the tragedy of Venezuela, I think it's a, it's a question really worth, uh, worth considering. You have the largest refugee crisis in possibly the history of the world, not, never mind, the the uh, of, of of Latin America, you have starvation on a massive scale, and what stands uh, in the way of it? Well, it's our it's our scruples about intervention. I'm not sure if you weigh the moral costs. It's entirely clear to me that we're on the right side of that. I'm not arguing for it. I want to emphasize that, but at least I think we ought to consider it and not just dismiss it out of hand. Okay, uh, let me, just to anticipate the blowback you might get for that and maybe help you head some of it off, I, I suppose you'd consider it a caricature of what you're saying that we need to intervene militarily to end the suffering which we have exacerbated with our sanctions. You're not, yeah, you're not, look, I'm not saying, I'm saying, I'm not even saying we should intervene militarily. I'm saying that this posture of simply dismissing it out of hand seems to me to contain serious moral costs. And if some future administration were to intervene, it would be absolutely the case that one purpose of intervention would be to lift the full burden that has been imposed on Venezuelans by the Maduro regime and by the sanctions that the, its behavior have uh, 
invited. Okay. So um, let's uh, let's talk a little. We've been talking a while. We should probably wrap it up for too long. Let's. But you did bring up uh, trade agreements. You brought up TPP. Let me ask you a question about. Um, this is ultimately a question, kind of about uh, global governance. It's about, but but in the form of the World Trade Organization. In this case, um, the uh, you know WTO. Well, what is your uh, you're very favorably disposed to the TPP? How do you feel about the WTO? The reason I ask is because I, I'm a big champion of global governance in various realms, you know, environmental, arms control, and so on. Um, the WTO I've always thought was uh, lauded, laudable, at least in the sense that um, it had it had uh, for the first time really uh, a, um, brought you know. It created a, a a system of adjudication uh, and some degree of uh, actual authorization of remedy or punishment uh, uh, as part of the adjudication at the multilateral level. So I like that a lot about the WTO. And, and in fact, I can imagine in principle uh, the WTO uh, – becoming uh something that also gets involved in other issues more than it has environmental issues and so on but um what is your what what's your take on the on on the WTO well back in 1995 or whenever when it was created out of the gat i was uh in favor of it but it's failed i think it's a shame it's failed but you have to reckon with the fact that that's happened and you know look global governance is only as good as the willingness of all of its participants to play by the rules of the game. If they don't play by the rules of the game, you need enforcement mechanisms. And if the enforcement mechanisms are weak, then they're not really enforcement mechanisms. They are hortatory statements of, of censure. And this is, goes beyond the WTO to all manner of international governance. You know, Walter Lippmann once said, uh, I thought sagely somewhere that, you know, um, Disarmament was effective for the countries that wanted to disarm. You know, uh, uh, I think as neat a refutation of the concept of global disarmament as we've ever, as we've ever had. Um, I have to add that Walter Lippmann had all kinds of terrible and incorrect thoughts, and so therefore I should never cite him again because he's a thought criminal. But he said that, and I happen to agree with that particular statement. So I think it's a shame that um, the WTO has failed, but when an organization fails, it probably saves um, uh, money and expense to uh, to close it down. We have all these organizations that kind of uh, exist like zombies, you know, uh, from some from some bygone era that that could use a, a rethink, even if they provide the salaries of a few thousand international uh, functionaries. Um, but I do like ideas like the TPP because, for two reasons, because I think that multilateral trade agreements are actually better agreements than bilats, um, and because they all involve, uh, they're all linked to a common purpose and have a kind of common buy-in. Uh, even NAFTA, which was quote-unquote replaced, it was essentially replaced by, by something that resembled it you know, very, very closely. Um, and, and that, I think I'm a great supporter of that. I grew up in Mexico city and I remember what Mexico was like in the 19, early 1980s, late seventies. 
And for all of its huge problems today, and they're, they're immense, many things about Mexico are better uh, thanks, to, uh, thanks to NAFTA, and many things about the United States are better thanks to NAFTA. So that's a long way of saying uh, no to WTO, yes to TPP, yes to a common, uh, common economic zones in Europe. I may be the, probably the last person who believes this, but I still think that the euro was a good idea. Um, and uh, uh, so, long as, so long as these things have not just the buy-in in terms of treaty powers, but something like broad popular consensus that can sustain them uh, over long periods of time and different, different uh, governments and administrations. Okay, what are the examples of the WTO's failure? What has, what has the WTO done since the Doha round? Which failed. Well, actually, uh, I'm not. A, I'm not an expert on WTO. My understanding is that the system that was set up with, when GATT evolved into the WTO, namely that you had these adjudicatory bodies that could they didn't they didn't uh, authorize the WTO to punish miscreants, but they did authorize sanctions by the aggrieved party if its grievance was found to be justified. My, my, my sense is that that was actually working pretty well until fairly recently. Now, there's two things have happened. First of all, Trump, and he's out to destroy the WTO. And in fact, I, I believe he's still refusing to uh, permit new judges to, he, he's kind of paralyzed the top, uh, court of appeals at the WTO by refusing to authorize new judges. But secondly, there's the issue of China. Now, my understanding, I mean, China is often said to have cheated. I don't, I, I just don't, I honestly don't know to what extent it has actually broken the rules of the WTO and to what extent the rules of the WTO failed to anticipate various things that can be done by uh, state-owned enterprises, right? Just, just the, the rules aren't set up to deal well, well with the kinds of implicit subsidies you get uh, from an economy that relies heavily on state-owned enterprises. If, if, if that's the problem, I'd say fix the rules. If China was really glaringly violating the rules, like more than we were or something, I'd say that's China's fault. I'm not sure that's the case, but... Um, I don't know. You know. I mean, look, uh, you're, you're we're, at least uh, in the service of candor, you're stretching me to the breaking point of my knowledge because I, I am happy to confess that I have not followed the politics of WTO particularly closely. I do have views on trade. Um, and my impression is that the WTO has kind of been uh, uh, dead like disco since Doha failed um, sometime when... I'm thinking Bob Zellick was the U.S. trade negotiator. I mean, he was. you're now kind of stretching my memory here. Yeah. And, and I, I'm not an expert. Maybe we should profess mutual ignorance. Um, the the uh, so finally, um, your 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 most ardent critics, if they if they get this far in the conversation, will complain about two things. I haven't uh, yet asked you about climate change, and I haven't yet asked you about Israel. Um, I, I oh, think good. I have time. I can. Yeah, actually, it. actually, I was going to propose that we have a, a second conversation at some point. Um, yeah, I'm happy to. OK, I've, so m- maybe we can accommodate Israel there and I'll ask you a quick climb, uh, climb, not exclusively Israel, but I mean, uh, 
uh, foreign. There's a lot of things we didn't get into that we can get, get into, and maybe we can uh, get into Israel that time. The, the, the um, but but quickly on climate change. Um, how have your views changed? I I I I, I want to say something that may be in your defense. I thought there was, of course, a big brouhaha when you were appointed. Uh, a columnist uh, at the New York Times by my uh, an old friend of mine, James Bennett, and uh, who's a very good man. I want to say for the record, he, he he's always a very has fine, been. He's a very fine human being. He's a great journalist. He was a superb and sensitive uh, boss. And I'm just going to say this publicly: I I I miss him very dearly, and I think that he should. Um, he has every right to have. Uh, a, an illustrious career in his future as well as in his past. He's always been a good guy. He was. Uh, I was acting editor of the New Republic for seven months, long, long ago, and he was one of my three interns. Um, and I was uh, <laughs> older than you look, <laughs> <laughs> or I was a prodigy. Unfortunately, oh, well, I wasn't both. a prodigy. Uh, the the um, uh, but thank you for that. Um, the uh, I remember when. Uh, um, before Mike Kinsley left and left me in charge, uh, after James had been there about a week, he was at that point Mike's intern. Uh, Mike read something that James had submitted and he came into my office and said, he's a star. <laughs> about he James. is. He is a star. No, he's, he's a very, 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 uh, talented, capable and, and good guy. Um, the, uh, so I, I thought, you know, you, you wrote in the wake of that, I mean, the, the, it seemed to be the biggest noise about your appointment had to do with climate change. You were a climate change uh, skeptic, I guess. Maybe I'm wrong. You seem to be remembering yeah, other no, ones. No, it's, but- it, you're, you're, it was definitely in the top five, but I, I've committed so many thought crimes that uh, it's, hard to, it's hard to keep track of them. But yeah, climate change was definitely up there. So, um, and I thought you wrote a column early on that, only made people matter, it seemed. Whereas I thought in the column you were actually starting to walk back your skepticism. Am I am I am I misremembering? I mean I yeah, thought no, no, you have it you have it exactly right. And so I was much more skeptical of about climate change issues maybe ten years ago. Um and um I just it just struck me that we were uh, placing a heavy global bet on a threat that at the time seemed to me uh, more notional than real. Over time, you know, I, I try at some level to have a bit of humility, believe it or not. Um, and when there is such a weight of expert opinion um, telling you this is this is real and serious, I think it just becomes kind of foolish to kind of go nya 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 and uh, uh, listen to, you know, the five people who agree with you and pretend that you are in possession of the truth, which is why the that first column I wrote was not actually, I mean, that column was as much about climate change as um, Frost's poem, Two Roads Diverged in Yellow Wood, is about getting lost in Maine. It was a column about intellectual certitude, and it was as much pointed at myself as it was at um, the climate industry, if you want to call it that. Um, and I conceded 
uh, somewhat ineptly because I got a number slightly wrong, but I conceded that the world is warming, that the causes are anthropogenic, that is to say man-made, um, and that it's a serious problem. Where, where my reservation, I don't know if, I, I have to use the word skepticism uh, uh, more uh, considerately, my reservation is when we move from the what we know we know to models that um, we can be less sure about, and um, and I think that what I was tr- I guess what I was trying to say is that the certitude, as opposed to certainty, certitude means something different. The certitude with which many of the climate activist community approach the problem actually serve their own interests poorly because whenever they made a claim that turned out to be wrong, it provided magnificent ammunition for every skeptic to say, these guys are just full of shit and they're going to bankrupt the world in order to prevent, you know, uh, what may turn out to be uh, a serious but non Um So, that was the point I, th- but I guess it, you know, my, my, my bad for not making it more clear. Okay. Well, thank you, uh, for that mea culpa and that clarification. Um, uh, this is, this is, uh, I've really enjoyed this conversation. I'm glad you, you are, are game for another one. Sure. Uh, this is, uh, look, I, I hope you take this, uh, my, my sparring with you is, is, this is the, the most enjoyable conversation. Oh, yeah. I've oh, no. All this day. is, uh, this was, by my standards, uh, almost unnervingly civil. Um, are they? Are, I, I, I'm now going to start becoming a devotee of your podcast. Check out me and Bob K- Kagan if you want to hear voices raised. I, would I mean, never, it's fine, uh, but I, I don't. I don't. You know, I I only raise my voices uh, at um, you know people who cut me off uh, on uh, on uh, you know on. Yeah. Lexington Avenue. Okay. Well, my my reflexes. <laughs> and they never hear me anyway. My reflexes are no longer fast enough to cut people off, so you have no concern there. Uh, so so thanks a lot, and and yeah, let's let's do look forward to to, uh, to doing this down the road. Anytime. Have a lovely uh, fall semester or whatever it is. Okay. You too. Take care.